This is Dan Fleisch, and this is the podcast for the first portion of Chapter 5 of A Student's Guide to Vectors and Tensors. This podcast will cover the first four sections of Chapter 5, that is 5.1, which has advanced definitions, 5.2, about covariant, contravariant, and mixed tensors, 5.3, about tensor addition and subtraction, and 5.4, about tensor multiplication. Chapter 5 starts on page 132, and there's a little introductory material which just reminds you of what the previous chapter main ideas were. The first of those was that vectors can be represented by components that transform between coordinate systems in a couple of different ways. Covariant vector components transform in the same manner as the original basis vectors pointing tangent to the coordinate axes, and contravariant components transform in the inverse manner to those basis vectors. The second main idea in the previous chapter was that the coordinate basis vectors are tangent to the coordinate axes, but that there are reciprocal or dual basis vectors which are perpendicular to the coordinate axes, and those transform inversely to the coordinate basis vectors. The third big idea from the previous chapter is that if you combine contravariant components with the original basis vectors, that is the ones tangent to the coordinate axes, or if you combine covariant components with the dual basis vectors, that is those that are perpendicular to the coordinate axes, the combination results in a quantity that is invariant under coordinate transformations. In the case of vectors, that means the vector itself is the combination of the components and the appropriate basis vectors, and that vector does not change when you change coordinate systems. The components may change, the basis vectors will change, but the vector itself remains the same. So what is this chapter going to do? It's really going to extend the concepts, concepts such as covariance and contravariance, to tensors of higher rank. In order to make it clear what that means, the first section, 5.1, starts off with definitions. Section 5.1 begins on page 132, and it begins by referring way back to Chapter 1. In the early part of Chapter 1, scalars, vectors, and tensors were defined using the basic definition, which involved the number of directions involved in each of those quantities. Scalars, no direction. Vectors, one direction. And tensors of higher rank, more than one direction. That's served your needs up to this point, but now that you've seen the concepts of covariance and contravariance, dual and original basis vectors, you should be ready to understand more precise and more advanced definitions for scalars, vectors, and tensors. The scalar definition appears on the top of page 133. It's in a box there that says a scalar is a single value that does not have a directional indicator. It also makes the point that the scalar does not change as the coordinate system is changed. And this is described a little bit in the paragraph below that. If you've got a scalar that has a value phi in one coordinate system and a value phi prime in another coordinate system, whatever quantity those symbols represent must be the same quantity no matter how you represent it. And the example used there is inches and centimeters. If you measure the length of something, it doesn't matter which units you use, the length of the object remains the same. The next box toward the middle of page 133 gives the more advanced definition of a vector, and it says that in three-dimensional space, a vector is an array of three values, which we call vector components, and those combine with directional indicators. Those directional indicators are the basis vectors we've been talking about to produce a quantity that does not vary as the coordinate system is changed. 
Again, this is explained just below the box. A vector A is represented first as uppercase A superscript I times E subscript I. The uppercase A with the superscript I you probably recognize as the contravariant vector component, and the E sub I is the original basis vector tangent to a coordinate axis. But then the next equal sign says you could also have represented the same vector a using uppercase a subscript i times e superscript i. In other words, the covariant components a sub i times the contravariant or dual basis vectors e superscript i, which are perpendicular to the coordinate axes. The next paragraph describes that when you transform a vector from one coordinate system to another, if you represent that vector by its contravariant components, such as A superscript J, then when you do the transform, you get A superscript prime I, as shown in the equation that says A superscript prime I is equal to the partial derivative of x superscript i prime with respect to x superscript j. And you know that those terms, the partial derivatives, represent the components in the new coordinate system of the basis vectors tangent to the original axes. In the case of transforming covariant components, that's the equation at the bottom of page 133, there we're transforming the components a sub j to the contravariant components a sub i prime in the new coordinate system by multiplying them by a partial derivative, in this case the partial of x superscript j with respect to x superscript i prime. Notice this is the reciprocal of the partial derivative that was used to transform contravariant components. In this case, that partial derivative represents the components of the dual basis vectors that were perpendicular to the original axes. So those are scalars and vectors. The definition of a tensor is on the top of page 134, again in a box. And in this box, you can see that the definition of a tensor of rank lowercase n in three-dimensional space is an array of three to the power of lowercase n values, which we call tensor components in parallel with vector components. And just as each vector component combines with a single directional indicator, each tensor component combines with multiple directional indicators, that is, multiple basis vectors, if you have a higher rank tensor. The last part of the definition is the important part. The tensor components combined with the basis vectors form a quantity that does not vary when you change coordinate systems. This is why tensors have been called the facts of the universe. They are invariant under change of coordinate systems. So after the box is a little explanation, saying a second rank tensor where lowercase n equals 2 has 9 components if you're in three-dimensional space. Now we have a way of seeing how scalars and vectors can be considered as belonging to the class of objects called tensors. If you make lowercase n zero, that is, we're going to say a rank zero tensor, it needs three to the zero, that is, one value to represent it. That's a scalar. A tensor of rank 1 has, in three-dimensional space, three to the one, that's three components, that's a vector. So this is why you may see scalars called rank zero tensors, and you may see vectors called rank one tensors. What this chapter is going to be about is higher rank tensors. One thing you may be surprised is that there really isn't a standard notation for tensors. Some people use the double arrow, in other words, a symbol like a vector with another arrow on top of that. Other people use a two-headed arrow or a tilde above or below. It really doesn't matter what you use to denote a tensor, as long as you make sure you do something 
to remind yourself and any readers of what you're writing that the object you're representing is a tensor. In many cases, people just write some indices to indicate the tensor. For example, at the very end of this section, you see uppercase T to the superscript IJ or uppercase T to the superscript A subscript B. Those indicate that those are tensors of second rank because you can simply count the number of indices to see what rank tensor you have. This approach does have the benefit that the reader instantly sees not only the rank of the tensor, but how many contravariant and how many covariant indices it has. The next section will deal with tensors that have covariant indices, or contravariant indices, or possibly mixed indices, that is, some covariant and some contravariant. Section 5.2 about covariant, contravariant, and mixed tensors begins on page 134. It starts off with a reminder that an equation such as 5.1, which says that uppercase A superscript prime I is equal to the partial of X superscript I prime with respect to X superscript J times uppercase A superscript J, tells you how the contravariant components transform from the unprimed to the primed coordinate system. But if you tracked what went on in chapter 4, when you look at an equation like this, now you should see that this transformation represents a weighted linear combination of the components in the unprimed system in order to get the components in the primed system. And those weighting coefficients are the partial derivatives with the prime in the numerator and the unprimed coordinates in the denominator. Those are the weighting factors, which are the elements of the transformation matrix from the unprimed to the primed coordinate system. But as you should have seen in Chapter 4, those partial derivatives also represent the components of the basis vectors tangent to the original coordinate axes. Given that little reminder about what those terms represent, look at equation 5.2. This should be completely understandable now. It says that in the unprimed system, components such as uppercase A superscript KL transform into the new or primed coordinate system, that is A superscript prime IJ, through the expression shown in equation 5.2. And notice, just as in 5.1, there are partial derivatives which represent the elements of the transformation matrix in going from the unprimed to the prime coordinate system. But they also represent the components of the basis vectors pointing along the original coordinate axes. What that means is there are components of two different basis vectors that are involved with each of the vector components shown here. Now in this case, both of the indices are superscripted and the primes on the partial derivatives are both in the numerator. So what we have here is a rank two tensor in which the components are contravariant in both cases. You can tell that by the superscripting and by the primes being in the numerators of the partial derivatives. So there's a little explanation of this at the bottom of page 134 and the top of page 135. And then there's another vector equation, equation 5.3, which shows you for a covariant set of vector components, uppercase A sub J, they transform to the covariant components in the new prime coordinate system using equation 5.3. And once again, the partial derivatives represent the elements of the transformation matrix, but they also represent the components 
of the dual basis vectors perpendicular to the original coordinate axes. Notice in this case, the prime is in the denominator. So this is the reciprocal of the partial derivatives shown in equation 5.1. The paragraph just below 5.3 reiterates some of these ideas, and then equation 5.4 says, just as we did for contravariant components, for covariant components, we can have multiple indices, which means the components for a second-rank tensor are going to have two indices, meaning two partial derivatives as elements of the transformation matrix from the unprimed to the prime coordinate system, that is, two sets of basis vector components. And that's explained in the short paragraph immediately after equation 5.4. And at the very end of this section, equation 5.5 says, of course, in addition to having two contravariant components or two covariant components, there's another possibility. You might have one contravariant and one covariant component. That's how equation 5.5 is written. In the original coordinate system, we have uppercase A superscript K, that means one contravariant index, sub L, that means one covariant index. And when we transform to a new coordinate system, what do we get? Uppercase A, superscript prime I, subscript J. We end up with a quantity that has one set of contravariant components and one set of covariant components. Notice the transformation matrix elements, that is the partial derivatives in equation 5.5. For the contravariant, or K index, that's the first partial derivative, the prime is in the numerator, exactly as it must be for contravariant component transformation. But in the second partial, the prime is in the denominator because now we're dealing with the L or covariant index. This is called a mixed second rank tensor because it has one contravariant and one covariant index. Now it turns out that you can do math with tensors. You can add, subtract, multiply them. And the next section, 5.3, tells you about the addition and subtraction of tensors. Section 5.3 begins on the bottom of page 135, and it begins by reminding you that you can add two or more vectors simply by finding their components and adding like components. So, for example, at the top of page 136, there's an equation 5.6 that shows that the vector C is equal to the vector A added to the vector B. That's really three equations in three-dimensional space because what that means is that if you're in the Cartesian coordinate system, each of those vectors has an X part and a Y part and a Z part. And for equation 5.6 to be true, the three separate equations of 5.7 must also be true. That is C sub X must equal A sub X plus B sub X, C sub Y is AY plus BY, and CZ is AZ plus BZ. So that same process of adding quantities by adding their like components works for higher order tensors. The requirements are that when you add tensors, those tensors must be the same rank. For example, you can't add a scalar and a vector. You can't add a vector and a second rank tensor. They must be of the same rank. Furthermore, they must have the same number of covariant indices, and they must have the same number of contravariant indices. That number can be zero, so they don't have to have either one of those, but however many covariant indices one tensor has, another tensor must have that same number of covariant indices if you're going to add those two tensors. Same thing for the contravariant indices. If the tensors meet those requirements, that is, same rank, same number of each type of index, then the process becomes very straightforward, as shown in equation 5.8. There you see some rank 2 tensors being added. In the first case, A and B are each a second rank tensor with two covariant indices, and when you add them, you get C sub IJ, 
which is also a second-rank tensor with two covariant indices. The middle equation of 5.8 shows the same thing for second-rank tensors with two contravariant indices, and the bottom equation of 5.8 shows two second-rank tensors being added, and these two tensors have one contravariant and one covariant index. Again, remember, each of these represents more than one equation. The exact number of equations depends on how many values each index takes on, but each of these equations is the equivalent of 5.6 and the multiple equations of 5.7. Now, if we add two tensors, how do we know that the result is also a tensor? In other words, does it transform in the way a tensor must? If I combine the components with the appropriate types of basis vectors and I add two of those quantities together, do I get another quantity that has components combined with the appropriate type of basis vectors? And the proof of that is shown on the bottom of page 136 and the top of 137. Starts off with equation 5.9, where you see two mixed second-rank tensors and how they transform from the unprimed to the primed coordinate system. Notice that since they're mixed, the elements of the transformation matrix, one has the prime in the numerator, one has the prime in the denominator, and that means that each of those transforms in the appropriate way. But what if I add those two tensors together? That's done on the very bottom of page 136, where you see what happens when you add uppercase A to uppercase B. I've just written out each of them next to each other with a plus sign. But of course, you can regroup this, as shown in the very last equation on page 136. And now, we've got a quantity in parentheses that is the sum of the components in each case. And outside of that are the elements of the transformation matrix. But now let's ask, okay, if these give a quantity that is itself a tensor, what should that look like? So on the top of page 137, there you see a quantity that is a mixed second-rank tensor and how it should transform from the unprimed coordinate system components on the right to the primed coordinate system components on the left. And there's the transformation matrix elements, the two sets of partial derivatives. But if you compare that to the last equation on page 136, you'll see that the addition of uppercase A superscript I subscript J and uppercase B superscript I subscript J does in fact produce a quantity. We can then call that quantity C superscript I subscript J, and it transforms exactly as a tensor must between the unprimed and the primed coordinate systems. So adding two tensors together does yield an object which also meets the definition of a tensor. Subtracting tensors obeys the same set of rules. You can see some examples of that for covariant, contravariant, and mixed tensors in equation 510. And the result of the subtraction does yield a quantity which fits the definition of a tensor. That is, it transforms in the appropriate way. And if you want to see how that works, there is a chapter end problem that deals with this and an online solution. Section 5.4 deals with tensor multiplication, and it begins on page 137. In previous chapters, there were two forms of vector multiplication that were described. One was the scalar or dot product, and one was the vector or cross product. What wasn't presented there was another form of multiplying vectors called the outer product. Understanding that process is useful in understanding tensor multiplication, so that's presented here at the bottom of page 137. The outer product example that's given is between a column vector, uppercase A, and a row vector, uppercase B. 
And as you can see, when you form the outer product of those two vectors, you simply take each component of the first vector, that is the A vector, and multiply it by each component of the B vector in such a way that you end up with the two-dimensional product shown on the right side of the equal sign in which each term is the product of one pair of components from the two vectors. Notice also that one way to denote the outer product is to put a cross inside a circle, as is done on the far left of this equation. But many authors simply write the vectors or tensors for which the outer product is being taken next to each other, as is shown in the next equation, in which the outer product of a mixed second-rank tensor, uppercase A superscript I sub J, is formed with a mixed third-rank tensor, that is uppercase B superscript K sub LM, when you form that outer product, you end up with a tensor of the fifth rank, which we've called C, superscript I, subscript J, superscript K, subscript LM. So the rank 2 tensor A and the rank 3 tensor B, when you make an outer product, gives you a rank 5 tensor. That should make some sense because if you look at the vector case a little above this, you had a rank 1 tensor, that is a vector, outer product with another rank 1 tensor, that is another vector, and you ended up with a rank 2 tensor. The ranks of the two objects add when you form the outer product. That's why C ends up being a tensor of rank 5 at the bottom of page 137. Now is C a tensor? We can follow the same process we did previously, that is write out how A transforms between coordinate systems, write out how B transforms between coordinate systems. This is done at the top of page 138. Then multiply those two quantities together. That's done in the middle of page 138. And as you'll see, the two partial derivatives that are the elements of the transformation matrix for A and the three sets of partial derivatives are the elements of the transformation matrix for B combine to give you five partial derivatives in front of the multiplication of the components. If we let the quantity on the right, that is uppercase A superscript I sub J and uppercase B superscript K sub LM, if we let that represent the new quantity C superscript I sub J superscript K sub LM on the right side of that equation and on the left side we do the same thing in the new coordinate system we see in equation 511 that the C in the unprimed coordinate system does in fact transform to C in the prime coordinate system using that set of partial derivatives that are the elements of the transformation matrix. So in fact taking the outer product of those two tensors does result in a quantity which is also a tensor. A really useful way of multiplying tensors is called the inner product, and that's described next. Inner products are especially useful because they're a generalized version of the dot product or the scalar product that was discussed back in Chapter 2. If you read that, you probably remember that in taking a dot product, you combine two vectors in such a way that you get a scalar. So if this is going to work the same way, when you take the inner product of two tensors, you might expect to get a tensor of lower rank. That is exactly what's going to happen, and to understand how it happens, you have to spend a little time thinking about a process called tensor contraction. Here's how you contract a tensor. You simply take one of the contravariant indices of the tensor and set it equal to one of the covariant indices. That means that you're going to have in one term a contravariant index and a covariant index that are the same, and by the summation convention, that means that you sum over that index. So the result of this operation is going to give you an object that has a rank two less than the object you started out with. 
It's probably easier to understand if you look at it in practice, and that starts at the bottom of page 138. Here there's a tensor of rank 4, uppercase C, superscript IJ, subscript KL, and let's say we want to contract that in the second and third indices. So that means the second index J and the third index K are going to be made the same. When you make them the same, since one's a superscript and one's a subscript, it means you're going to sum over it, as is shown in the last equation on page 138. In the case where J and K run from 1 to 3, you can see that this becomes C superscript I1, subscript 1L, C superscript I2, subscript 2L, and C superscript I3, sub 3L. When you add those together, there are only two indices left. We call that object uppercase D superscript I sub L. In other words, a rank 4 tensor has become a rank 2 tensor. We reduced the rank by 2 because we made one index the same as the other, and then we summed over that index. This gives you an object that is a tensor as long as you do the contraction over indices that are in different positions. That is, one has to be a subscript and one a superscript. You can understand why that's a requirement by looking on the top of page 139, where we subtract the tensor that we got from the outer product that was equation 511. In this case, I've contracted it along the first and fourth indices. That means I set Q equal to N, because N was the first index and Q was the fourth index. I wrote out the C prime from equation 511 with Q now equal to N. Notice on the left side of the equation, in the, the fourth index has been made into an n, and if you look on the right side of the equation, you'll notice what that does to the partial derivatives. If you count into the fourth partial derivative, before contraction, that would have said partial of x superscript l with respect to x prime superscript q. But now that we've made q equal to n, it says partial of x superscript l with respect to x prime superscript n. That has an interesting result. You can regroup these terms, as is done in the next line, and you'll notice that now the first term has a partial of x prime superscript n in the numerator, and the second term has a partial of x prime superscript n in the denominator. So those two are going to combine to produce the first term in the next equation, partial of x superscript L with respect to x superscript I. What was two partial derivatives becomes one partial derivative by virtue of the fact that we made the numerator index in one the same as the denominator index in another. But of course, the partial of x superscript L with respect to x superscript I has no prime in it. That means these are coordinates in the same, that is, unprimed, coordinate system. And when you take the derivative of x superscript L with respect to x superscript I, since those are in the same coordinate system, that partial derivative has to yield 0 unless L equals I. That is, unless you've got partial of x to the L over partial of x to the L. That gives 1. The easy way to express that is using something called the Kronecker delta function, which is shown in the middle of page 139. There you see delta superscript I sub J is equal to 1 if I equals J, but 0 if I does not equal J. That means we can take the first term of our expression for C prime and set it equal to the Kronecker delta function. That's done in the next equation. There you'll notice the first term has been turned into the delta function, but if that means that that equals 0 unless L equals I, we can now look to our C term, which has an I in its first index and an L in its fourth index, and those two must be equal. 
And since i is now a repeated index, it's a dummy index. That means it's going to be summed over. So what we're left with is a quantity c that has only three indices. And that reduction of two came about only because we set one contravariant index equal to a covariant index. The last paragraph on the bottom of page 139 explains that the inner product is really this two-step operation. The first step is to form the outer product of two tensors, and the second step is to do contraction on the result. So, for example, with two vectors, when you form the outer product, since each is of rank 1, you get a tensor of rank 2. You then contract that result, which reduces the rank by 2, makes it a scalar, and that's exactly what the inner product between two vectors should give you. That's the reason that the inner product is considered to be a generalization of the dot product or scalar product between two vectors. It's just that now we have an operation that we're able to use on higher rank tensors as well. The next podcast will deal with the next two sections of Chapter 5, which deal with an extremely important tensor called the metric tensor and how you can use it to raise and lower the indices of tensors.